Yeah, you bet. We, uh, we really are excited about one, th- this partnership, which is one of many, where we, we say, hey, because of your generosity, we are able to be generous to, to places like Lighthouse for Life or Mission Lexington or even places abroad. And so thanks for your generosity. When, when you give in those black boxes or you go online and, and give there, your generosity allows us as Radius Church to do that. And so this is one of those uh, great uh, organizations that's helping people and uh, we're just, we're excited to partner with them. Um, when you think about our vision for the next couple of years is really just to double in generosity. It's to give more money away to organizations like this. And so uh, next, or in a couple of weeks, we're going to start what we call Pray May. Many of you have been a part of uh, Radius for a while. We call it Maymester. On Wednesday nights in May, the first three, we're going to get together and we're going to pray over some of the things that we're excited about and we want to see happen over the next couple of years. And May 4th, all six of our locations are going to go down to the Ice House Amphitheater and we're going to talk about our vision to make disciples and to plant churches and to grow groups and all of those things. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. So mark your calendars for May 4th. Pray May begins and it's going to be a great time to talk about the vision that God has laid on our hearts. I tell you what, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to pray for uh, Lighthouse for Life and the great work that they're doing, and, um, and then we'll jump in. Cool? Oh, Father, uh, just honored to be a part of a church that uh, has partnerships like Mission Lexington or Hydro Missions or Empower One or Gems, and, and then here, Lord, uh, Lighthouse for Life, uh, these folks that are just um, helping these ladies who are hurting and broken and, um, and could desperately need a, a loving touch and some kind words and, and a way to get back on their feet. And so I pray that you'd continue to use them. I pray that the little bit of money that we, we give them, you would multiply it and it would continue to, to, to meet the needs there at Lighthouse for Life. I pray for that house. Um, I can't wait to see what it's going to look like it is, as it is restored and ladies are able to come there and find transition out of where they've been and into a new life. And hopefully that includes your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, that's what we ask. We love you. It's in your son's name. Amen. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel 16 today. 1 Samuel 16. Um, In 1999 was uh, probably the first time I remember. I don't know. It may have been before that, but the Rams were the defending Super Bowl champions. They are our current defending Super Bowl champions, right? They're going to go in and they're going to defend their title. Uh, this year was a, to be expected. They had a great squad. But in 1999, I'm going to remind you of a few details for those of you that might remember the story. The way it worked is the Rams were 4-12 and 12 going into the 1999-2000 season. Four wins, 12 losses. It wasn't good. They thought they were a quarterback away. If we had a quarterback, we've got all the pieces, we could get to the Super Bowl. And so the Rams went all in, and they went out and found the free agent, a guy named Trent Green. And Trent Green was a multi-million dollar free agent, and the first three preseason games were as expected. He was lighting it up. Everybody was excited about the Rams' potential to have a winning season and maybe make the playoffs. And the third preseason game, Trent Green takes a nasty hit to the knee, and he's gone for the season. Gone for the season. 
all of their hopes were riding on this golden boy who had a resume of winning in the past. This is the guy to help us. He's going to take us to the next level. And they looked at their roster after Trent Green went down and all they had as a backup was a guy who had arena football league experience in the pros, arena league, and was stocking grocery store shelves just a few years earlier. Everybody starting to remember this guy? Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner's all they got left and they throw him out there and Kurt Warner becomes the hero from the guy stocking grocery store shelves to not only winning, but taking the Rams into the playoffs. And not only taking the Rams into the playoffs, taking them to the Super Bowl. And not only taking them to the Super Bowl, but winning the Super Bowl and becoming the Super Bowl MVP. Y'all remember all of the stories? Like, this is exactly what we dream of, right? The guy who was unknown, probably shouldn't have been on an NFL roster based on his previous experience, and then becomes the hero from anonymity to the hero of the Super Bowl. Today, we're going to start a series on a guy that has a very similar story. His name is David. David is going to be a hero, but before he's a hero, he's a nobody. He's a self shelf stalker. He's a shepherd and he's going to go from nothing to a hero. And you know the hero story, right? David and Goliath. You know the hero story of of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the nation of Israel. And we're going to just trace his life over the next couple of months through his obscurity to this heights of being the hero of the nation of Israel. Now, there are 60 plus chapters written on the life of David. There is absolutely no way we can read every word. So what we've done is we've, we've gone online and we've created a, a, a website for this series. You can go to radiuschurch.info. And when you go there, you click on the, the David sermon series and there's a reading plan where you can read along with us these passages. And that way you get all 66 chapters of it and we'll just hit the highlights. How's that? So if you want to find some resources there, go to radiuschurch.info. And right now we're going to jump in 1 Samuel 16 and let's see the first time David is mentioned in scripture. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Well, when I read that this week, I got to thinking that is a mouthful, isn't it? Saul, Samuel, King, Israel, Bethlehem, Jesse, what in the world is going on? And so anytime we start a new series like this, we like to put it in context of the entire storyline of Scripture. And I could do that for you, but it'd be pretty boring. And so I thought I would have some help today. Layla McCutcheon, will you come on up here? And we all give her a hand. She's probably a little nervous. Y'all give her a hand. It's going to be exciting. The reason I picked Layla is because in Radius Kids, what they're doing right now is they are learning the storyline of Scripture. I'm going to let you stand right here. And as they are learning the storyline of Scripture, they got hand motions and all kinds of good stuff. And so they're singing songs and they're learning these stories. And so I thought, you know what? 
let's have somebody a whole lot cuter and who can do this way better than I can help us out. So I'm going to let her get started. I'm going to interrupt here and there just to make sure we're all on the same page. All right, you ready? They're all friendly faces. See, they're smiling at you. You ready? Take off. Well, I'm just me. Sorry. I didn't do my job. There it is. In the beginning, God created the world. God created people. Sin entered the world. Noah and the ark, the tower of Babel. Okay, stop right there. Great job. That's 11 chapters of the Bible right off the bat. (laughs) God created the world. God created people. That's Adam and Eve. And then sin entered the world. You remember the story, tree of knowledge of good and evil, talking snake. Sin entered the world. And not only did sin in the world, but it got really bad. And God had to destroy the earth with a flood. And that's where she said Noah's Ark. And then when they got off the boat, you would have thought everything was fine. It should have all been perfect, but it wasn't perfect. They decided they want to build this big honking tower called the Tower of Babel so they could be like God. And God decides, no, we're not going to do that. So he scatters them across the globe and changes their language. Then what in the world is going to happen next? Go for it. God's covenant with Abraham, God's promise to Isaac, Jacob's new name, Joseph sent to Egypt. Okay, stop. Great. It's doing great. So God looks and says, you know what? Let's start over, but I'm only going to start over with one family, Abraham. I'm going to make Abraham and the descendants of Abraham my people. They're going to be my nation. So Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons who are going to end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those is Joseph, who she just mentioned. Now, the other 11 brothers didn't like Joseph because Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And after a long set of circumstances, Joseph brings his family to Egypt and they end up being enslaved there. And they're enslaved there for 400 years, 400 plus years. So that's what gets us to that point. All right, Layla, take off. Moses was born and called the plagues and the Passover, the Red Sea crossing, the Ten Commandments. Okay, stop. This is not great or what? So... Moses is called by God and he says, hey, I need you to go down to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we call Israel. Sometimes we call them the Hebrews. Sometimes we call them the Jewish people. He says, go down there and tell them to let them go. And she just told you there were 10 plagues. After the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, get them out of here. They get to the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea in an amazing miracle. And then when they get there, God says, these are my people, and I'm going to make a nation of them, and I'm going to give them laws. And those laws are the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments, along with several others, were basically this, that you are going to trust me, you're going to love me, you're going to follow me, because I love you, and I've made you my people, and I've been faithful to you, so be faithful to me. Obey my commands. Simple enough, right? Simple enough. Just do that, and it'll all be great. All right, Layla, take off. The tabernacle was built, Joshua and Caleb crossing the Jordan. Okay, stop right there. So God looks at him and says, here's the deal. If you're going to be my people and you have a law, I've made a promised land for you. And that promised land is flowing with milk and honey. So they take Joshua and Caleb and they go scope it out and they come back and they're like, "Uh, they're big giants over there. So 40 years later, they finally cross the Jordan River and they go into the land flowing with milk and honey. 
and then we can stop here. It's going to be perfect, right? Everything's going to go just like God had planned. He had these people that loved him and followed him and obeyed God's word. It was going to be great, except it wasn't great. What happens next? Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel's first king. Okay, right. I don't know that one. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. They look at God and say, thanks for your law. Thanks for your covenant. Thanks for all of that. But we don't want to follow that. And matter of fact, that part where she said Israel's unfaithful is that book of Judges in your Bible where they did what was right in their own mind. And they even started worshiping other gods. They started worshiping other gods. And when they worshiped these other gods, God was faithful and he was loving. And this is what he would do. He would raise up somebody like Gideon or Samson or Deborah or Samuel. Took me a while to get there, but Samuel, I just said his name here, right? Samuel was the last judge because these guys had to rise up and say, hey, this is what we do. This is how we follow God. We're supposed to be faithful, but the people didn't like this whole setup with judges. And so Layla just told you they had a first king, and that first king's name was Saul, which got us right here to our passage today. And I'm fixing to tell you a little bit more, but Saul was a failure. The golden boy, the Trent Green, if you will, was a failure. And so what happens next? The last one for us. David was anointed. Solomon asked. You're good. You're good. She, she knows more of it, but I'm stopping at David was anointed. Will you all give her a hand? Hey, great job. Go ahead. I told you it'd be way better if she did it, right? Man, can you imagine knowing the storyline of Scripture as a third grader? Man, it's really cool. Man, I could not be more proud of what is happening right now in Radius Kids. Thank you to those of you that give time every week to invest in that, to see them learn Scripture, to memorize the books of the Bible, and this storyline as it unfolds. So let's read 1 Samuel 16 one more time. Now that Layla's got us caught up, helped us understand some names. Let's look at it. Verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, that last judge, the last one who was, who was going to try to coalesce the people around God's word and around his law. He said, how long are you going to mourn for Saul, the first king of Israel? How long are you going to mourn for this guy? Because Saul was a failure. And then he says, I want you to go to Jesse's house, and I got another king in mind. So let me tell you the story, because it's a little personal. Samuel is this, uh, it's an amazing story. It starts in 1 Samuel 1. His mom was unable to have children. It's another sermon for another time. But Samuel is finally born. And when Samuel is born, he comes to the forefront and he leads the people, not just locally, but as a nation. One of the first times we have this national leader. And he's a good guy. He walks with God for the most part. He really tries to steer the people in the right way. But he has some sons that are worthless. They are worthless. They, they take bribes. They don't judge well. Matter of fact, the leaders of the nation of Israel said, hey, your sons are worthless and we can't follow them. And so we need to do something else. We want a king. Every other nation has a king. We want a king. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I can't blame him because the guy before Samuel, his name was Eli. And Eli was going to put his couple of sons in play and his sons were 
worthless, evil, wicked. So I can't half blame the nation of Israel for looking at their last couple of big time leaders and saying, you want us to follow your wicked, worthless sons? No thanks. And so they look at him and say, we want a king. Samuel's feelings are hurt. And rightfully so. His feelings are hurt. He's like, I thought I was doing a good job. I know my sons aren't great, but really you're going to ask for a king. So Samuel goes to God and he tells him, he says, they've rejected me, Lord. They've rejected me. And God looks at Samuel and says, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. What are you talking about? This isn't about you, Samuel. This is about the fact that I have called these people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is about the fact that I rescued them from Egypt. And ever since they left Egyptian soil, they have struggled to follow me. They have struggled to obey me. Even when you were up there getting the Ten Commandments, they were building a golden calf to worship. Time after time after time, they have disobeyed me. That's what God tells Samuel. I I stop there just to say this. God is incredibly long-suffering, isn't he? Patient, gracious, forbearing. This is years. This is years of unfaithfulness. This is years of failing to follow God's word. So God looks at Samuel and says, hey, man, don't, they're not, they're not rejecting you. So God looks at Samuel and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to warn them because if they take a king, they got to know what the consequences of it are if they take one. So Samuel does. Let me, let me read a little bit. It won't be on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it. It's in 1 Samuel 8 for those of you who, who would like to read it later. This is what Samuel says, and he holds no punches. He says, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them on his chariots. He will take your sons and put them in the field. He will take your daughters to become bakers and cooks. He will take your best fields. He will take your grain. He will take your male servants. He will take your flocks. He will take, he will take, he will take. I mean, Samuel doesn't hold back. He lets them know, you want a Saul, you want a a king to give you protection. You want a king to give you representation. You want a king that will go out and fight battles, but these guys are going to do nothing but take from you. And then in the ultimate mic drop, this is what he says. Verse 18, when the day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. You're going to cry out and you're going to say, help us, deliver us. This king wasn't what we thought he was going to be, King Saul. And Samuel looks at him and says, you're going to be stuck. Second thing I learned from this is this. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. They're asking for a king and they think they know what's right and all the other nations seem to have one and it seems to work for them. So why can't I ask for one? We got to be really careful what we ask for. Careful what we ask for in relationship. Careful what we ask for in jobs. Careful what we ask for in titles. Careful for what we ask for with responsibility. Careful for what we ask for. He might just give it to you. So they look at Samuel and say, no, 
We must have a king over us and we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And that's exactly what God's been doing. Judging us, going out before him and fighting their battles, but they don't want God anymore. So then we get to chapter 9, and this is who they choose, a guy named Saul. I put it on the screen for you because there's a couple of words I want you to see. Chapter 9, verse 2 says this. It says, he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. That's their first king. That's his resume. That's his resume. Tall, dark, and handsome. Let's follow him. That's who we want. I mean, and can you blame him? Let's be real here. The first major battle that David's going to encounter is a guy named Goliath who's really, really big and tall. So wouldn't it be nice to have a really, really tall guy ourselves to go out and fight him? Wouldn't it make sense to have a physical specimen, somebody who looks like they walk in the room and everyone would respect him just by how he looks? Who cares about his character? Who cares if he walks with God or not? We just want somebody that looks good. That's a lesson in and of itself, isn't it? This is just for free. Deuteronomy 17, God knew this was going to happen. In Deuteronomy 17, God says, when you appoint a king, this is what that king better do. That king better take God's word, write it down for himself, and read it every day so that his heart won't turn away. And we never get a record of Saul ever doing that. And so for Saul, he's not going to get a vicious tackle and his knee's going to get taken out. It's going to be a character issue. And I don't have time for that. That's a sermon series maybe for next spring where we can look at the life of Saul. And it's a doozy, more depressing than it is anything, but he's a failure. So let's go back over here to 1 Samuel 16 and see now that Samuel's been mourning it. He knows he, he was part of choosing him. He knew Saul was a failure. He, he knows that for himself he's got his feelings hurt. In verse 1, it says, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. That's where I want you to go. Verse 2, Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he's going to kill me. Well, one thing we're going to learn as we go through this the next couple of weeks is just because David is anointed king doesn't mean Saul's going to let go of it. Matter of fact, Saul's going to try to kill him, and he's going to try to kill him multiple times. That tells you the kind of character the guy has. He's white-knuckling the kingship. And so Samuel says, if I go anoint another one, Saul's going to kill me. And look at what God says to him. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You just do your job. You go do your job and sacrifice to the Lord and then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do and you are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Just show up at the house, make a sacrifice and I'm gonna tell you which of his sons is gonna be the next king. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem and when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? love this. These are the same guys in 1 Samuel verse 8 who were asking for a king who said your sons are worthless. And in 
two other times from 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel 16 have rejected Samuel's leadership. They're shaking in their boots. What have you come to do? Have you come to destroy us? Samuel says, I come in peace, verse 5. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. I wish I could tell you what consecration is. Maybe it's a washing. Maybe it's a certain meal or a sacrifice. I'm not real sure. But he consecrated all of them and said, let's go share a meal and sacrifice. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. So Jesse's got a firstborn son named Eliab, and they sit down, and they're fixing to sacrifice, and they're fixing to share a meal, and in walks tall, dark, and handsome, round two. And what does Samuel say? This is him. This is it. Your firstborn. I mean, just take a look at that strapping fella. Isn't it amazing how we just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, isn't it? I mean, maybe none of us struggle with that in here, but good grief. I mean, you just, you just went through it. And then you're going to look at the guy based off of how he looks. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. What are you doing? This is not how we're going to do it this time. That's how you did it last time. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. I'm looking for something more. I'm not just looking for physical. I'm looking for spiritual. And I'll be honest with you, man, this is really difficult for us, isn't it? There's something mystical about it. Like I even hate to use that word myst mystical, but there's just something about it. And if you don't think this is an issue, it has been an issue ever since God has worked with humanity. Because the only thing we ever really want to pay attention to is what we see with our physical eyes. And we fail to have spiritual insight over and over and over again. So he looks at him and says, I'm not looking for that. Now, here's what makes it worse. Probably one of the most well-known verses about David is the fact that he's a man after God's own heart. See, you knew it. You know it. But God had already told Samuel that in 1 Samuel 13. We're in 1 Samuel 16. Let me read it to you. It'll be on the screen. I, I just want you to see how important this is. Samuel finally has to go to Saul and tell him, you're, a, you're, you're worthless. You're, you're, it's, you're, you're rejected. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel if you'd have just obeyed. But now your reign will not endure. And the Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. I find that really profound that Samuel knew God was looking for someone after his own heart. And the minute tall, dark, and handsome walks in, 
Isn't that true for us? How many times do we know exactly what God wants from us, and yet we don't do it? Right? What happens next? 1 Samuel 16. Jesse called his second son, Abinadab, and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. And then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Samuel's starting to get the clue, right? First, no. Second, no. Third, no. Verse 10, after Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? I know I'm here to anoint a king, and if none of these are it, is this all you got? Verse 11, there is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep, Samuel told Jesse. I wonder what Monday after that Sunday preseason game, when the coaches got together and they got the bad news that Trent Green's season is over. Right? I can imagine, I don't know, I've never been in the Rams practice facility. I can imagine they have this big board over there with all of the the, the depth chart, and they got quarterback there. There's probably two or three of them. And I can imagine there's this window that they can see on that side, but the players can't see the coaches. And I'm imagining they're back there, doors closed, and they, they're sitting back saying, what are we going to do? There's millions of dollars out the door. What's next? And they take Trent Green's name off the QB1 spot, and they look at the next one, and it says, Kurt Warner. No NFL starts. Only team that he's been on in the NFL and just a few years ago, stocking groceries. I can imagine them looking and saying, which one is it? <laughs> oh, he's the guy back there in the locker way back in the back. And coach says, go get him. Put a red jersey on him for practice today. It's what we got. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesse sitting back saying, it's, it's none of these. Do, do I need to bring Eliab back out here? Because he's a good-looking dude. So I got, I got David out there tending sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down and eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. I'm not even really sure how to read this next part. I'm not even really sure. Look at what the narrator of this book does. You see it? You're, you see it, don't you? So Jesse sent for him, and he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. <laughs> is that how we judge this thing? I mean, is that, that's really the first words out of your mouth? I got a ton of questions about that. By the way, the word healthy and handsome is the exact Hebrew word in 1 Samuel 9, 2 that described Saul as impressive or handsome. Exact same word. What in the world is going on? Try to answer that question in just a second. What's the rest of the story? 
The Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is what I know. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about this. We know for sure David was different. He had some spiritual characteristic and quality that was different than Saul. We know he's described as a man after God's own heart. If you read the Psalms, you can't read many of them without stumbling across some of his words of worship and adoration of God Almighty. We know there's something different about him. But there's something different very much the same about him. And what is the thing that's very much the same? He's one of us. He's one of us. And so, yes, David is going to be a hero in a couple of weeks. And one of our favorite stories, when he cuts Goliath's head off and holds that rascal up, he is the Super Bowl MVP. But you will not be saying that when he meets a woman named Bathsheba. And you will be saying he's the MVP again when they bring that Ark of the Covenant back and they dance and worship because it's been gone for years. And then you're going to say he's not the MVP when he blatantly disobeys God and does a census of the people. I think the narrator of Samuel is doing this. The same way Saul will rise and fall, so it is with any man that you put all your hope in. Oh, he's going to be good and he'll be different and he'll be an upgrade from Saul, but he will not be an upgrade from God. He will not be an upgrade from God. So let me, let me tell you Russell's interpretation here. You ready? I'll fast forward the story. Layla's not here to help me, so here it is. Believe it or not, they're going to have king after king after king after king. And most of them, when I say most of them, I mean most of them are going to be wretched. And they are going to lead the people to worship other gods. And God said this, if you do that, I'm going to send you into captivity. For 70 years, you're going to go to Babylon, and you are going to be a foreign people in a foreign land with foreign gods. And then after that 70 years, I'm going to take you back to the land. I think that as the people were sitting in captivity, reading 1 Samuel 16, 17, 2 Samuel, I think it was a starch reminder of this. When we get back home, who will be our king? Are we looking for David? Are we looking for Saul or are we looking for the king who should be the king? I think that's what they're wanting to do. Who will be the king? And that question thousands of years later is still asked today. Who will be your king? Who's going to be your king? And for us, most of us, you won't name a person, even though we could probably put our kids in there. Some of us might name jobs, we might name aspirations, we might name dreams, we might name goals, we might have a, a money amount tied to it. What is your king? And who will be your king? And as we do this and we celebrate where 
David is clearly a man after God's own heart. And then as we mourn when he's not, we're always forced to ask and answer the question, who is your king? And God is long-suffering and patient and saying, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, uh, it is so easy to go about this world and life and to trust in a hundred other things, to trust in our abilities, to trust in our, our, uh, our talents, to trust in people. And even though we're not asking for a, an earthly monarch, we, we set ourselves up at the throne and, and think we'll be better than Saul. I won't mess up. I just confess, Lord, I, I have made terrible decision after terrible decision in trying to govern my own life. And I just come to you again today and say, I, I need you to be the king. I need you to be the one that, that goes before me. I need you to be the one that fights my battles. I need you to be the one that, that judges me and loves me and guides me. I need that. And so, Lord, as we sing a couple of songs that just remind us of who you are and your goodness, I pray that we would be declaring that you're king. And ultimately, your kingship now rules through Jesus Christ who gave his body. And as we take bread and juice and remember the sacrifice that was made, we, we recognize he is the king. Rightfully. So, Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.